Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey, milkshakers. One Skin is a longevity company led by a team of five PhDs developing solutions to prevent slowdown and reverse aging. One Skin's topical supplement is daily moisturizer powered by their proprietary peptide OS01, the first peptide scientifically proven to reduce the biological age of skin. I know it sounds crazy, but I actually see a difference. It's only been a week, but I actually see it. I got like healthier skin. My my lines are, you know, not as deep. Trust me and Reza. Visit oneskin.co slash milkshake and use code milkshake for 15% off your first purchase. The code applies to one-time purchases and the first order of subscription purchases. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O slash milkshake and use the code milkshake for 15% off your first purchase. One skin. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. It's me, Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan. Hi everyone. Hello, hello. Reza, I've got something on my mind. It's about Air Bud, isn't it? It's, uh, all you think about is Air Bud. I agree with you, it is a franchise that never really got its due. We all agree there. You don't have to keep bringing it up every show. Okay. Yes. Airbud is a classic. But I was thinking a little bit more about racism. Oh, okay. What about racism? Racism sucks, Reza. Wow. It's are, so bad. This is deep, dude. This is very controversial statement here from Rain Wilson. You heard it right here. It folks. is awful. Just I mean, the worst. T- take it easy. Take it easy, Rain. You don't want to get too political. I know how you feel about that. It's just terrible. Look, of course it's terrible. I'm a brown man uh, from Iran. I'm a Muslim. Like, I know what racism is like. I, you should, I should show you the files of racist uh, hate that I get for me and and my family. Yes, racism is bad. I know that. Well, not yeah. Not only that. I mean, yeah. You're you've you've undergone a little bit. I mean, imagine how bad it is for African Americans here in America. Exactly. I mean, it's just yes, true. It's the worst. Yes. But you know what? Where it really hits home is with people like me, the whiteies, <laughs> us whites. I've been pondering this. Racism has so adversely affected white people's pocketbooks over the last several hundred years. It's just horrific. I have a very poor family, dare I say, white trash. I mean, without racism in this country, we would probably have health care. Um, my family would. Um, universal health care. We would probably have free college education. Uh, there would be... Um, uh, better wages and salaries, stronger unions, um, except for racism, which has really 
really fucked up me and my <sighs> white brothers and sisters. Well, now this is this is actually pretty deep, Rain. I I I was just getting ready to make fun of you for talking about how bad racism has been for you as a white man. So bad, but you're, you couldn't even but you're, understand. <laughs> but you're actually right about this. That you know, obviously, we talk about how racism is terrible for people who are literally uh, the target of racism and racist attacks. But what we don't talk about enough is how racism is bad. For everyone else, every single person on the planet. Now, before we get everyone hanging up on our podcast and pissed off at me, this is the point because we have read an extraordinary book Mm. and uh, we are going to be talking with an extraordinary author. Yep. In fact, uh, we have a guest here. Her name is Heather McGee. She's a wonderful, brilliant thinker. Um, she, as a political commentator, she was a, a, a political strategist. She's a former president of a, a think tank uh, called Demos, which uh, creates uh, policy proposals, progressive policy proposals. She's a uh, uh, you know, a, a commentator, and she's written this book that you just kind of talked about a minute ago called The Some of Us, which, you know, I'm going to, Rain and I are obsessed with this book. We're obsessed with this book, right? And The Some of Us, and the subtitle is What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's an incredible way forward for all of us in America. And she's a self-described policy nerd and economics wonk. She loves, like, budgets and policies and legislation. And yet this book is so insightful and just eminently readable and relatable. It has huge heart. And we thought, let's have her on the show to, you know, help us figure out how we end racism as we know it. Let's have her solve racism. This has been a thorn in the side of America and a a shoe in the face of America for hundreds of years, maybe Heather McGee can solve racism. Heather McGee, hi! Hey! Oh, Heather is my friend, Rain, unlike you. You have a... <laughs> I'm surprised you have a, a friend, Reza. But listen, Heather, <laughs> welcome to the milkshake. If this was, I'm Reza, so if this was like an early morning AM, like rock jock, be like, welcome to the milkshake. Whoa, 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 whoa. Righteous rain race. and and Rutabaga <laughs> Reza in the house. Let's fix, <laughs> Let's fix racism, y'all. Racism. I'm gonna fix racism. I'm gonna fix racism. You know, we would probably have more audience actually if that were the, the <laughs> That's case. true. Speaking of audience, what I mean, huge success. The book is called The Sum of Us. I love this book. And you know what? I was going to read it anyway because like we're friends and I feel like I'm going to buy it. I'm going to read it anyway. And then I I would like normally in these situations pretend that I liked it and be like, really fascinating. But like, ask Rain. Honestly, halfway through the book, I called him and I was like, I fucking love this book. Yes. (laughs) Of all the books we've read so far, this was the one that warranted like four uh, offline discussions about how Mm -hmm. great this book was and how- yes. You know, it's oddly, for all of this policy stuff, and you call yourself a policy nerd and a policy wonk, like, it's oddly moving. Like, it just touched yeah. my heart so many times in in a very different way. Um, 
and just thrilled to, to talk to you about it because uh, essentially you've solved racism. Yeah. So um, this is this is great That's news, the America. Best part of it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> here we go. The end of racism. Go, Heather. Go. <laughs> Oh my God, I love this so much. I love this so much. Well, I do think there's a path. I cannot say that having sold, you know, a few tens of thousands of books has quite accomplished the goal, but I do think there's a path. I took a journey over the course of three years all across the country, talked to hundreds of people, and I see a path. Well, maybe the paperback. I think the, pa- the paperback is cheaper. There we go. More likely to solve racism than the That's going to reach the millions that we need to reach. Um, so <laughs> let, let's start with the central metaphor of the book. You talk about how white folk have repeatedly, via racism, shot themselves in the economic foot. And yes. the, uh, the, it's not an analogy. It's not a simile. What is it? It's metaphor? not even really, it is somewhat metaphoric, but the example that you use, frankly, is the shutting down of the swimming pools. So in yeah. the late 50s, there was great uh, economic success in post-war America, the Eisenhower years, et cetera. And uh, America, especially in the South, decided to build beautiful parks and beautiful swimming pools. And they were gigantic Olympic-sized pools and parks uh, everywhere. And then but black people weren't allowed, of course, because this was the Jim Crow South. And then when that got to the courts, the courts said, well, you're going to have to let black people into these beautiful swimming pools. And, and they zooms. did, and it was great. The end. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> and so what happened is just, um, uh, fla- I'm, I'm going I'm to date myself here. It was flabbergasting. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> My jaw dropped. Uh, time and time again, Throughout the South, especially Montgomery, Alabama, and many other places, the swimming pools were bulldozed in. They were filled in with dirt. The parks were closed. Entire parks departments were shuttered and shut down. Like, literally, like, let's no longer have a parks department in this town or in this county or even in this state. And playgrounds were shut down. Zoos were shut down. The animals were were sold and given away because white people were so racist they did not want to share their parks, their zoos, and their swimming pools with black folk. And here you have this incredible searing example of white people cutting off their nose to spite their face that um, they would give up beautiful parks and recreation and family time and really hurt, um, socially hurt. What's the word I'm looking for? Not socially. What is it? Um, well, it tore at the fabric of the community too. Yeah, it, it hurt right. the fabric of the community to, to not yeah. have these beautiful kind of civic programs in place all because of, of racism. And this set us back decades. I mean, us white folk to lump myself in with these white folk of that era back decades and uh, and really fucked us up. And um, this has happened time and time again. So can you tell us a little bit about why this happened with the swimming pools and what I'm leading you toward is this whole zero-sum racism that you talk about? I mean, I wish it was just pools, right? I mean, I'm an economic policy person, so I wish I could say, hey, it's nice, you know, that people swim or don't swim. It doesn't really matter. But the drained pool began to stand in for me as 
an allegory for what That's happened the word I was to- looking for, Heather. Allegory. <laughs> it was allegory the whole for- time. It- I mean, I don't know. Maybe parable, right? Maybe yeah. limerick. I'm not sure. I think I like limerick. Um, yeah. But it, there once was a man to... from Montgomery who wanted to pool, <laughs> swim in a pool, and so he could hummery. And he he dove in know. the dirt, and there was no pool, and everyone laughed, and white people were very very sad. <laughs> yeah. Rain doesn't really know how limericks work, but yeah, something like that. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, Please, please it's continue okay, with great. this central haiku of your um, <laughs> of your book. Five syllables. The drained public pool. Hey, okay, nice. that's as far as they're going to go. The drained public pool um, really stands in to help explain what happened to a whole host of public goods and protections mm. that the government used to really have a strong commitment to in this country. Think about the massive expansion of working class people being able to afford a home because of subsidies and housing. Think Mm -hmm. about Social Security. Think about the GI Bill, which made college free for a generation of GIs. And all of that, either explicitly or implicitly, excluded most Black people, just like the pools. And what I found was that if you try to explain what happened to the like great American dream, the great middle class, the Aussie and Harriet, the, you know, it was basically easy to have a really great standard of living. We had the highest standard of living in the world. And then what happened starting in the late seventies and eighties, where it suddenly became this inequality economy, right? What an economy that used to look like a football with a fatter middle and, and, and smaller numbers of high and low income people then look like a bow tie with a sh- shrunken middle and a lot more poor people and a lot more very rich people. Like what happened? I know what happened in terms of, you know, what we changed in taxes and labor, but why? And really the drain pool helps explain how it was mm-hmm. that the majority of white Americans turned their backs on the formula that had created the middle class, that had given nice things to millions of people in a public free way, and instead made them a private cost and a private luxury, right? Like some white families could still swim even when they gutted the parks and recreation department because they just built a backyard pool or they had these membership only private swim clubs. And that's sort of like what our society is today, right? Like if you can afford Mm. it, you can have the nice things in life. But if you're on the edge or if you're even just solidly middle class, these things like childcare and healthcare and housing and college have been priced out of reach because we've turned our backs on the idea that there's some things that should be public goods. And it really was racism and the idea of sharing those things across lines of race that was the the catalyst for this monumental political shift that white people had in the wake of the civil rights movement, sort of over to the right wing. So uh, it's like turning racism into a zero-sum game. So for people like Rain who don't understand what zero-sum game means, uh, it, it essentially means that— I had to Google it. <laughs> he, he did. That, that was I'm going to be totally that honest. Was a truth. I'm a that pretty was a smart truth. guy. That's what Google is for. And and I, I, people talk about, oh, it's a zero-sum game, zero-sum game. I'm like, I always nod my head. Yes, mm-hmm. sound, sounds like a zero-sum <laughs> game. What does this mm-hmm. mean? Okay, listeners at home who are ignorant like me, it means games where— there's uh there's has to be a loser if there's a winner. So if the numbers go up, there has to be a corresponding numbers going down so that it always equals zero, which means basically there's not a scenario in which all boats float upwards. That's right. In terms of racism, it essentially means that 
that the white person's prosperity must come at the expense of um, the someone else of of a of a different race, right? That that improving the status of a racial minority necessarily means worsening the status of white people. Which, even as I say it, I mean it's like it's absurd. It's one of those one of those statements where like the idiocy of it is baked into the sentence itself. And yet, Heather, and yet. Folks, let's get real. We can all probably use a lot more fruits and veggies in our diet. I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do, especially like me when you're either like working at home and you just eat whatever's in the fridge or like, you know, you stop at a drive through on the way home from work. And I don't know about you, but I have made it my resolution to change that. And that's why I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. They have my back with delicious food that's good for me and it's good for the planet. This household, I'm telling you, Rain, we are all about the Daily Harvest. We like we have we have I think more than one Daily Harvest subscription in this household. That's a lot. More than one is a lot. Yes, that's that's like two or or more. That's that is yes, that is what uh, two or more means, and and I know that because I eat my fruits and vegetables. Yes, you do, Reza. And you know, I love the Daily Harvest. Uh, I keep many in my freezer. Um, I love it. You know, they they have these great oat uh, bowls oh, yeah. for the breakfast. Oh, yeah. yeah, the for breakfast and they're like oats with like mangoes and berries, and you just like. You add some water and heat it right up, or and it's just nutritious. Have, try, little, and, try to like add a little bit of, of warm milk to it. That's what I did. And the, and they've got great like snacks, lunches, dinners, whatever you want to do. There's mm-hmm. smoothies. Big fan of the smoothies. They've got a whole, a whole line of smoothies. They've got these harvest bowls. Broccoli and cheese harvest bowl is one of my very favorites. What we're saying, folks, is that Daily Harvest makes it easy for you to feel good about what you're doing for yourself and for your planet. So go to dailyharvest.com slash milkshake to get up to 40 bucks off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash milkshake for up to $40 off your first box. Dailyharvest.com slash milkshake. Who knows? Maybe you too will have more than one subscription. You know what, folks? Flowers are sweet, but she'd prefer to sleep. Show you care by giving your Valentine the gift of better sleep and wellness from cbdistillery.com. No, seriously, with all that's gone on in the world these last couple of years, a special Valentine's Day assortment of CBD products is an exceptionally thoughtful gift for that special someone. The potential health benefits of CBD are impressive, from better sleep to less worry and more calm. I can't think of a better Valentine's Day gift. With over 2 million subscribers... And with over 2 million customers, CB Distillery is the source to trust for safe, effective, and natural CBD products. And you never need a prescription at cbdistillery.com. So show your Valentine how thoughtful you are and how much you care with a sweet gift assortment of CBD products from cbdistillery.com. And be sure to use promo code LOVE for 20% off. Again, that's promo code LOVE at cbdistillery.com. Again, that's promo code LOVE at cbdistillery.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And yet, the first study that I read at the start of this journey to write this book was called Whites now see racism as a zero-sum game that they are now losing, mm-hmm. which was this study um, which looked at from these two Boston-based professors, which asked a whole bunch of white people uh, kind of to, to, to evaluate on a one to 10 scale how much racism there was against black people versus white people. And they rated anti-white racism as more prominent and more serious than anti-black racism. This is in the middle of Obama's first term as president. And they said it was basically because they had seen black people get more positions of power, more people of color in the country. And so in the zero sum logic, that must mean that whites were now the discriminated class. And then if you look at a whole other set of research that's related, um, it's this idea of a group status threat, right? When you ask white people, um, you know, if you show them the fact that they will soon be the majority, the, it will soon be a quote unquote majority minority country that, that the demographic changes mm-hmm. are happening. And so there will be no racial majority in 2042 or whatever the year is that that makes them more conservative on issues that nominally have nothing to do with race, from the minimum wage to drilling in the Arctic. It's sort of this sense of like, we know what it is to be a minority on a gut level. We don't want to be a minority. And so we want to sort of extract and hoard all the resources we can from the status quo um, because we're afraid of a future in which we no longer have the status advantage. Okay, I love I love this because... I have to admit, I was listening to your uh, uh, book on tape. I was listening to your lovely voice speaking to me at 1.5 speed because, you know, I mean, you're you're yeah. kind of a slow yeah. reader. Um, and <laughs> while while I was driving my family in a gigantic RV and, uh, and I'm listening to this. Oh, here he this, goes. Here he goes with I, the RV story. <laughs> and it, look, I, guess what, Heather? It broke down in Fresno. Tell us again about your adventures. Technically, technically it broke down in Vacaville, but which is, Vacaville, you know, I mean. Fresno. <laughs> the literal cow town. It's a zero sum. Um, love zero you, Vacaville. Thank you for town. taking care of us. Um, and I got to this part that, that you were mentioning. Like, yes, okay, so this narrative that um, white people uh, see the well-being of people of color as a threat to their own um, well-being. Uh, that's crazy, and we're going to talk a, a ton more about that. But early in the book, you talk about what you just mentioned, which ju- I mean, mm-hmm. almost I almost drove off a drove off a cliff uh, it, when I when I heard this. When you um, explain any kind of policy proposal by making either race or demographic changes a salient point in that policy proposal, what happens is that white people, regardless 
of whether they are Republican or Democrat, regardless of whether they are liberal or conservative, are more likely to take the conservative Republican position on that proposal. So, in other words, like if you if you say to people, college should be free, you know, people on the right disagree, people on the left uh, tend to agree. If you say college should be free because people of color have been historically uh, left out of you know higher education, the white people, regardless of whether or they're on the left or right, are more likely to disagree with the concept that college should be free. Am I am I saying mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, basically, you know, in some ways, this is kind of taken. It it both requires all of these this study, and it is sort of jaw dropping to see it laid out. And yet it is the core logic that has animated and, in fact, curtailed the policy ambition of Democrats for my entire career, right? The idea that if we talk about race, if we do things that will help people at the bottom of the social hierarchy, whether they're very poor or they're black and brown, or because they're very poor, white voters assume they're black and brown, that is going to alienate some white suburban moderate. And therefore, we either shouldn't do the policy or shouldn't talk about it, or probably both. So you're talking about- That's been sort of like- Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Heather, you're, so you're talking about race and class. Like you can't bring up race yeah. or class in policy decisions or in educating the public about policy because that will turn- the average suburban housewife in St. Louis against the idea. Is that right? Well, you can talk about class in some ways, but once you start talking about poverty and people who are poor, that Mm. so reads in the white imagination as black, even though the Mm. largest share of impoverished people are white. Um, But but the media skews it, right? There have been a lot of studies about the sort of face of poverty in the news media, which is far more likely to be black than it is in the actual population. So yes, poverty, um, crime, and actually talking about people of color, all of that sort of reads in the white imagination as talking about people of color. And because that identity has been so degraded, and by that I mean the sense that people of color, if they're in a you know economic struggle, it's because of bad choices that they made, mm. not because being paid too little or not having enough good paying jobs and having high unemployment rates or being the subject of discrimination has made them, has given them poor choices, like between rent and food, right? Mm. So there's this sense of blaming the victim that is really core to the politics of the past 40 to 50 years. And it has meant that your typical white voter is more conservative than they would have been before uh, the Civil Rights Act and than they were before we had more diversity in this country. And they're more conservative in their voting patterns than they should be to meet their basic needs. Issues like the unaffordability of college is something I talk about as an example of racism draining the pool. College used to be free. Mm. When it was 95% plus people going to college who were white. And this anti-government ethos that sprung up really after the government 
move from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy, right, and the segregator to the upender of the racial hierarchy in the civil mm. rights movement, most white Americans turned their backs on government and felt like it was a betrayal and, and began to distrust collective action and began to prefer tax cuts and the market to the government. And so what did that mean? It meant that there was less of a political voting block for maintaining public spending on college, and you had the draining of the pool, 26 cents on the dollar on average, state schools cutting their funding, shifting it to tuition. Now we've got a system where we have a trillion and a half dollars in student debt. And the reason why I say that's like draining the pool is that meant that working in middle class white people also have to borrow to go to college. Black people have to borrow more, right? Black people never got to swim, but white people who are not very wealthy are struggling as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where the opening is for a race conscious cross-racial class solidarity to to emerge in this country. And frankly, I think it is. Okay, one thing that I thought was really fascinating about this is that people of color don't see race as zero sum, mm. right? That mm-hmm. that stat after stat shows that while, you know, white people tend to see uh, racism as zero sum, people of color don't. Like people of color don't think, oh, well, like if a white person succeeds, that means that I can't. What What's that about? Why? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's, it's interesting. Because we're just better people. (laughs) Was that that racist? That was, that was racist. No, no, it, no, it wasn't (laughs) racist. It was, uh, it was stereotyping. Um, uh, but, and it was, you know, a value, you know, judging people based on color. But if you add a little more sophistication to what you're saying, Reza, it might be totally a fine thing to say, right? Burn, Um, burn. (laughs) (laughs) So everything we believe comes from a story that we've been told. And so when I think about you know, how you can possibly talk about majorities of white people believing certain things and having a sort of shared consciousness and way of looking at the world and how you can distinguish those from people who have been told a different story by society because of their culture and because of um, the importance of who is telling the story. I almost think about it as like the white story. It's not about the white race because race doesn't exist, right? It's a social contract. Mm -hmm. Rain and I may have more genetically in common than I have in common with, you know, Ice Cube or someone like that, right? Um, who, you know, there there is a really important distinction to make between the stories we're told and the stories we believe about our identity and about other people's identity. Mm. And what I'm trying to do in The Some of Us is remind people that All of these stories that we believe about ourselves, about who we are to one another, about our relative status and relative worth are being told by often like a pretty concentrated, narrow, self-interested elite who is selling the story of zero-sum racism and zero-sum racial hierarchy to white audiences. And they're doing it for their own profit. And so it has served an economic interest to have white people prefer to see themselves as better than people of color who may even be similarly situated so that they can sort of divide the working and middle class. And this divide and conquer strategy is older than the nation. It is one of the first sort of things that the colonial elite did in order to maintain 
racial slavery and to convince the masses of white people who were here in servitude that they were somehow better than African slaves and frankly get them to defend slavery, which was nonetheless enslaving these white people out of a job, right? Enslaved black people were not, slavery was not in the near term immediate economic interest of white indentured servants in the pre-American days, in the colonial days. Um, And yet, as a response to cross-racial uprisings among servants who were white, black, and indigenous, the elite created a difference and said, hey, white people, side with your race instead of your class. And that's what conservative race mongers are doing today Mm -hmm. and for the same goal to make sure that the economic elite has the buy-in of the mass of white people. Rain, did you know that only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled? No matter how much you put in your recycling bin? Wow. At Grove Collaborative, they believe it's time to ditch single-use plastics for good. Grove carries hundreds of products aimed at replacing single-use plastics across your home and personal care routine. And by 2025, Grove itself will be 100% plastic-free. Like concentrated cleaners and refillable glass bottles, they're friendlier to the planet and twice as effective as the leading natural brands. Switch to sustainable products for every room in your home, from laundry care to hand soaps and more. Grove Co. has you covered with safe formulas and refillable packaging that never compromise on performance. This is, we're, in our household, we're all about the Grove. Because, like, we made a, our 2022 New Year's resolution was less plastic. That was our family resolution. Mm. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, this is, like, right up our alley. We are, we definitely are part of the 2 million households that are already shopping sustainably at Grove. And you can be, too. So, go to grove.com slash milkshake today to get a free gift set worth up to $50 with your first order. Plus, shipping is fast and free. Get started right now at grove.com slash milkshake. Grove.com slash milkshake. NordVPN is a secure way of preventing your personal information from being spread all around the web and the dark web when using Wi-Fi. The line of protection is wonderful. It prevents spam, viruses, and other unwanted privacy intruders. Reza, do you like NordVPN? Yeah, I actually uh, use NordVPN for a whole host of things, like when I'm you know, at airports or whatever, and I'm using Wi-Fi that I can't trust. I also actually use it to... Uh, access like libraries around the world because you know I'm a I'm a smart serious man and I'm constantly trying to access mm-hmm. libraries around the world and uh, and yeah Nord allows me to do that and listen if you're not a smart serious man you can also use NordVPN to access entertainment content from all around the world 59 countries to be exact, simply by changing your virtual location with a single click. I mean, you know, Rain, you and me, we live in the U.S., but with NordVPN, we can be anywhere in the world and we can access content from all those regions. That's right. You can even use NordVPN on up to six devices, your laptop, phone, iPad, smart TV, etc. I love to use NordVPN to access my favorite TV shows in other countries, as Reza was talking about. So go to nordvpn.com slash milkshake or use code milkshake to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free. 
It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And if you too are like me, you know, you carry your iPad or your, you know, laptop all around with you to like coffee shops and restaurants and bars, and you're just like constantly getting on people's Wi-Fi. You don't know where that Wi-Fi has been, people. You don't know who's listening. So I love, I love what you're saying so much. And I love this whole idea of the white story. Um, I had an aha moment that happened about 20 years ago. And I always consider myself a little bit more on the woke spectrum than not. But I, I used to um, a great deal listen to AM uh, right-wing radio. And I was driving through Los Angeles. I just moved here. And I was listening to, I don't know, Rush Limbaugh or someone like that. And the, the point of the story was they found a black woman in Detroit who had won the lottery and won like $3 million. And then they found that she was also taking welfare of like, I don't know, $200 a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that she had been taking welfare for a year and a half or something like that. And call after call of outrage about this woman. And it, it just went on. It, this wasn't like a little news piece, like, oh, let's talk about this for four minutes and then get on. I mean, it, it was fully an hour long about talking about this woman who had won the lottery. And I was driving along. And I was like, what is happening here? I'm trying to wrap my head around this discussion. Like, what's what's the dog whistle? You know, as they always say, what's the story behind the story? Well, the story is obviously that these very canny kind of right-wing news folk have figured out how to poke this beehive and foment outrage by saying, here's this black woman who, and they didn't go into like, was it negligence? Did she forget to quit her welfare? Was were she, was she really like drawing? And, and who cares? Anyway, she was caught. She paid the $13,000 back to the government or, or whatever it was. But there was so much going on in the world to be concerned about. And yet there was this hour of outrage over this woman. And that's when it really hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, I see. This is all about race. This is all about perpetuating this white story, which is that... Um, these black and brown people are sucking your tax dollars away and the mm. government is essentially corrupt and is playing into this whole into this whole story and mm-hmm. and um, so let's get rid of welfare so, so and this was yeah. you know and this was uh, was it clinton or post clinton it was yeah. post clinton but it yeah. was in the let's get rid of welfare years and this drew me to um a quote that you had as a, in, in your book, and this is a famous quote by Lee Atwater, who people may know was a, a very famous uh, Republican strategist. Um, it worked for, for Bush and, and others. And he was taped saying, you start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. He wasn't saying N-word. He was saying the actual word. By 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you, backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, all that stuff, and you're getting abstract. And then you're cutting, talking about cutting taxes and all of these. You're talking about these totally economic things. He said, there's a quote. And a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. So, you know, this maybe this is kind of racism 101, but you know, when you go to the swimming pool analogy and I think about the woman in Detroit who won the lottery and you think about this white story, um, it's it's been so cannily played um, 
to the um, well to how, the how advantage I, of wealthy white people. Like that's the thing. What I love about the story that you just told, Rain, is that it, it's like it's so perfect. Like it's 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 just like gift wrapped, right? So therefore, let's get rid of um, welfare, which overwhelmingly helps white poor people. Like the the majority mm-hmm. of white, how many white people? Rain, you know this. Like, what's the percentage of white people who are on welfare? Uh, it's welfare uh, recipients are in the high forties, so almost half are on uh, okay. welfare, and then it's like. 25, 30%. Right. So it's like, it's like, I think it's a quintessential version of, of, you know, what Heather's talking about with, with zero sum racism. Yeah. You know, and I think there's two pieces there that I think are really important to underscore. One, who was saying that? It was Rush Limbaugh, a straight up millionaire, right? (laughs) Who is paid to peddle this hate, right? Um, You know, Tucker Carlson is today's version, Donald Trump. Rupert Murdoch, the one pulling the strings for a bunch of this, right? These are all millionaires and billionaires who are these paid bullies using the corporate media to divide working people from one another. And I think there's sort of like a deeper kind of fascinating thing that I touch on a little bit in the book, but to get to the metaphysical milkshake part of this, I was thinking about the the insistence that in fact it's black people who are getting something for free from the government. Uh-huh. When it's not true today, and it was even less true mm. for all of our history. Mm. And this brings up the psychological sort of framework known as projection, right? In order to maintain your vision of yourself as a good person you often project your own negative, you know, naturally we all have good and bad things about us, qualities onto the racialized other. That's some of the work that race does. It, It sort of creates this shadow that you can project all of these things onto, right? And in the book, um, on page 47, in fact, people have sort of said it to me enough that I remember what page it is. I go through the list of free stuff that white people got from the government in order to create the kind mm. of intergenerational wealth that even some of the poorest white Americans have today over some of the richest black Americans, right? Like the, the average white high school dropout has more wealth, like home equity, savings, some stocks and bonds somewhere than the average black college graduate, right? So this is about history showing you up in your wallet. And what is this history? It's a history of free stuff being given by the government from like the Homestead Act, which was literally acres of free land to any family for the cost of a filing fee. It was taken from indigenous people and given to white people for free through to all the things I talked about in the New Deal, Mm -hmm. through to the GI Bill, um, this massive subsidization of housing, which is really like the quintessential how you have economic security in America. It's the linchpin of the American dream. Basically, for free in a way that deliberately excluded Black people from being able to participate in mortgages and and subsidized housing. And so what do you do with all that? Like, what do you do with the knowledge of that? I think most white people don't know it, right? Like, to their credit, they actually are are actually ignorant of the degree to which government privileged white people over everybody else. Mm -hmm. But to then, after just a few short years of the civil rights movement to say that it's actually government 
that is favoring Black people over all others is this massive projection. And I just wonder on a sort of metaphysical level why that's important, what work that is doing to us as a society. Um, and, and I think it's really important to be able to punch through it if we're ever going to have people who see themselves in one another and aren't so easily manipulated by this scapegoating. So this, this then is the fundamental conclusion, the inevitable conclusion of zero-sum racism, which is that everyone loses. And that's really yeah. The, yeah. The, the driving force of, of the book. And there's a ton of examples that we can, we can talk about. You've already mentioned uh, a bunch of them. Um, certainly, you know, healthcare, um, voting rights, um, the housing crisis, like all of these mm-hmm. problems that we are facing have as at their heart um, this issue of zero-sum racism where it's like, well, if this is going to benefit people of color, then we're, we don't want to have anything to do with it, even though it means that everyone is going to end up suffering as a result. But I was thinking to myself, what better example, like immediate current example of the way that zero-sum racism results in everyone getting fucked than the government's response to coronavirus, right? I mean, I remember so clearly when, you know, Jared Kushner, that fucking douchebag, (laughs) was like, this is a California and New York problem. You know exactly what he meant by that, don't you? You know yeah. exactly what he meant when that fucker said Those poorly run democratic cities, he right? Me- the sort of Detroit thing. That's right? what he the, meant. Like, exactly. Yeah. He was talking about black and brown people. That's what he was talking mm-hmm. about. It's their problem. And then now, of course, like everyone in South Dakota is dying of, of COVID, okay. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, it's like, it, it never ends. The cycle just seems to continue. Um, I was thinking like, I, we we've we we kind of we can talk about the the sort of the top ten greatest <laughs> hits of of situations in which we've all kind of you know been fucked as a result of zero sum racism. <laughs> uh, but are there are there like lesser known ones? I wonder. Like, are there ones that maybe you wouldn't normally think about um, when you when you sort of think about like all the problems that we're facing now? Yeah. So I didn't set out to write about climate change and the environment. Um, It's not my area of expertise. Most of the chapters are about the economy. There's one big chapter about democracy because I'm a democracy rights advocate as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once I started seeing the fingerprints of of racism everywhere in our collective dysfunction to solve problems, I was like, well, what about the big kahuna here? What about our unwillingness and inability to stop a meteor from coming towards the earth when we're supposed to be Superman. Like, why aren't we suiting up? Like, what is the problem with this country? We're responsible for most of the carbon in the air. We're the world leader. Why are we not doing this? Particularly when it could be such a win-win, right? The vision of transforming our economy and innovating on new forms of energy and just having this like exciting new World War II mobilization moment. Like it feels so quintessentially American to be like, we're going to lead on this. Mm -hmm. And yet we keep not doing it. And then I started to ask questions. I in some ways wish (laughs) that I hadn't asked about why it is that our country alone among the industrialized world, the conservative faction in our country, not only 
oh, maybe wants to do market-based solutions to control, you know, carbon pollution, is flat out denying that there's a problem right. and wants to sort of double down in the other direction. And then it, you know, occurs to me again that that conservative faction is overwhelmingly white and more likely to be male. And I was like, so is there some white male thing going on with climate denialism? Like, what is the deal? And that's when I started asking around and asking climate sociologists and people in the, you know, environmental movement. And it turns out that there is a correlation between the the, the white story that particularly white men have been told about the social hierarchy, which is basically there's sort of this natural hierarchy of value among human beings. And there's a ladder and the people on top are kind of on top because they're better. They're stronger, they're fitter, they're better. And when when the water is rising, right, um, if there is a risk, generally speaking, white men tend to minimize the idea of the risk because they think, well, I'm going to be protected by it. And the people who are going to be vulnerable to it are them that like have made bad choices and put themselves in that position or sort of weaker, whether it's like, you know, global South nations or people in, in the United States. And so there's this idea that it's like kind of okay to allow the chips to fall where they may. And we shouldn't do anything to upset the apple cart, particularly if the current apple cart and its distribution of apples has been so good to me and mine. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's pretty depressing because, you know, I mean, I I entitled the chapter The Same Sky, right? Because we do live under the same sky. You know, I mean, California shows like, Uh, you know, the fires are coming for the gated communities and the barrios and the farms as well, right? Like, we really can't just you know, kind of hierarchy our way out of climate catastrophe. And, by the way, for for anyone in the audience who thinks that we are speaking theoretically about the fact that, you know, um, zero-sum racism ends up hurting everyone, we we brought stats, all right? We brought fucking stats. Are you ready for this? We've got stats. We've got infographics and we've got stats. U.S. output would have been $2.6 trillion greater if only the gap between white men and everyone else were closed. If America Mm -hmm. had adopted policies to close the white-black economic gap just 20 years ago, that that time when, you know, Rain was listening to to Rush Limbaugh, the GDP today would be $16 trillion higher. This isn't theoretical, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is... It's, it's just it's it's flat out money that we're that we're leaving on the table, shooting ourselves in the foot, cutting off our nose, whatever stupid cliche you want to use for it, just because we're like, yeah, but I mean, we don't want black and brown people to. Well, to well I brought from up it. I brought up healthcare before. So universal healthcare mm-hmm. was proposed by Truman in 1947. Racist red baiting led by Southern segregationists kept the proposal from getting off the ground because they feared that federal involvement in healthcare might lead to federal action against what? Yes, you guessed it, racial justice, mm-hmm. injustice, and segregation. So imagine our country if we had had universal health care. We could have all been Scandinavian. <laughs> I, I, that, that doesn't rain, follow. But rain, a multiracial Scandinavia. Us. But yeah, that's the say. point, right, Reza? I mean, you know, I, I always felt this way when people would compare us to Denmark and say, why do they have, you know, universal health care and 28,000 days of parental leave and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like, 
So everybody feels like they're on the same team, you know, and they genetically actually kind of are. Dude, I never thought about this. This is actually a very interesting point that when you're in these sort of, you know, like Norwegian countries that we all like look at as the, the, the sort of symbol of progressive, you know, fantasy... You're right. They're all white. So zero-sum game doesn't... There, there aren't enough people to be like, yeah, but if we all have universal health care, then the black person would too. Because there ain't no black people. Right. Yeah, That's right. I'm and, exaggerating, and, and, and but you're getting be... the point. So this brings this whole conversation around. All right, here we go. Well, the reason uh, that we responded so strongly to your book was there are many books about racism out there. Many, many. And... Um, and yes, racism is horrible, and there's story after story, and it is it is ungodly and horrific and a cancer upon our, our nation. Your book is so crystalline clear that one of the fundamental issues with racism is that white people, again, are shooting themselves in the foot economically, that everyone has been woefully hurt by, uh, by racism— um, you state that uh, usually when racism bumps up against the pocketbook, that the pocketbook wins. But in this case, that's not the case. The pocketbook yeah. didn't win. Racism won. But how do we turn this, Heather? How do we fix racism? Is it the fact that we've tried everything else? We've talked to white people about how much it hurts and showed them case after case of injustice and case of case after case of systematized police brutality, et cetera, on and on and on and on. Do we educate uh, white folk about the fact that, listen, this is holding you back economically? Um, or is is there something else? What is to be done um, with your really kind of clear and practical thesis that we would all be so much better off without racism? Yeah, fix racism for us, Heather. Yeah. <laughs> And Come we got to wrap this up. So you yeah, got about two minutes and 40 seconds. running a little bit short <laughs> yeah, just on a little so long. It's a little just, long. Just, just. So. I kind of feel like I've run my lap on this. And <laughs> I would love for some white people to take up the baton. I don't yes. think it's actually my job to take this one over the finish line. I didn't start this race. I'm just trying to keep it moving, you know. Um, okay. So I, I will answer this question by telling a story. That gives me hope. That is, for me, a touchstone. Um, and it's a story of a young woman named Bridget, who is, you know, in many ways, sort of a quintessential white working class, would-be Trump voter. I don't know if she ever voted for Trump, but I wouldn't be surprised. She uh, lives in Kansas City. She's a minimum wage worker, three kids. Um, and she is somebody I met because of her work on the fight for 15 and a union, fight for $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. And she describes her life as one in which she totally believed the kind of anti-immigrant, they're stealing our jobs, they're you know, not paying taxes, some of the like anti-Black, you know, they're committing so many crimes stuff. It was what her family taught her. And she was also making seven twenty-five an hour. And she never thought that, they would, that, you know, her employer would pay her $15 an hour. She thought it was a crazy demand that the Fight for 15 campaign was making. But she went to the first organizing meeting anyway. And it was there that she 
saw a Latina woman stand up and tell her story of having three kids in a two-bedroom apartment with bad plumbing and feeling trapped and like there was nowhere to go in her life. And Bridget told me, I saw myself in her. Mm-hmm. And she said it was it was through that, through seeing myself and my life reflected in the life of a, a brown woman that she realized, and it was through sort of subsequent organizing for something that they that united them, um, the need to ha- you know escape poverty wages or mick poverty as they called it in Kansas City. That it wasn't a matter of us versus them. She told me she said for as long for us to come up, they've got to come up too, because as long as we're divided, she told me we're conquered. And Bridget's transformation that was born in common struggle, right? By linking arms with somebody who doesn't have exactly the same life story, right? In fact, you know, the Latina woman was going to be worried that somebody in her family might be deported at any time, right? And have a layer of other, um, you know, challenge in her life. And yet the fundamental human desire for something better in your family, for your family, the desire to not leave your family in the morning and come back still without enough money to feed them. That desire is so human. It is so, the reason why we have poverty wages today is so connected to the fact that our first minimum wage was zero, right? And now it's 725, right? You have a plantation economy that says we can steal labor from people, and take all of the rewards of their work, we the elite. And and in many ways, you know, we're just making baby steps out of that general ethos. And so Bridget understands now Mm. how her fate is tied up in the fates of Black and brown workers, how people like, you know, the sort of restaurant lobby and everything are, are trying to pit them against each other to keep them divided, about how Trump... And really the whole, as she told me, like the whole point of this movement in many ways is for white workers to realize that racism is bad for them too, because it keeps them divided from their brown and black brothers and sisters. And that's the lie that Trump is telling. Mm -hmm. So I think about Bridget and the transformation that she had and the way that she was able to go from feeling like she was totally trapped to being one of the leaders of a movement that has spanned the globe to combat poverty on the job. And I think, yeah, we can do this. This this idea of of cross-racial solidarity, of having the backs of people who are not exactly like you, but share some common struggle across lines of race is, is the most exciting and I think powerful phenomenon in our society. And it is happening more and more and more, despite the noise. And I, I'm hopeful because of it. So I think, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, wonderful, beautiful story. And it proves the, the fundamental truth that um, data, knowledge, these things mm. don't change people's minds. Relationships mm-hmm. change people's minds. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I never get tired of saying this, that bigotry is not the result of ignorance, that bigotry is the result of fear. And fear is impervious mm. to data or information that fear can only be tackled through relationships. Yeah. Okay. But we're talking about hundreds of millions of of people who are playing this zero-sum game. And mm-hmm. part of it, Part of it is like I think back to the, I think back to like you know the civil rights movement that a lot of the things that you know sort of the, a lot of the progressive policies that that people 
um, were advancing during that time uh, were um, re- rejected because we, people saw black and white people together, you know, holding hands mm-hmm. and, and asking for mm-hmm. for basic freedoms and and civil rights. And so I, it's you know, I'm stuck in this thing where it's like, okay, part of me thinks, okay, if if all of this has to do with the fact that you know, the uh, uh, zero sum racism has forced us to kind of uh, destroy uh, the broader um, goods. Um, to drain the pools, then the answer is to refill the pools, right? And make sure that people understand the benefits, the economic benefits of policies that do actually um, help um, people of color. Except that we've already talked about the fact that psychologically speaking, there is something in the mind that makes you instantly think to yourself, if this person who is not me, who is kind of how I define myself as a, as a, negative poll, um, if that person succeeds, then I necessarily uh, am not going to succeed or I'm going to actually like be be damaged by it some way. Okay, well, that that drives me crazy. Okay, well, what about, th- how about this idea then? What about we just never, ever talk about race ever again, right? Like we we de-racialize mm-hmm. everything. Like we, health, mm-hmm. we want healthcare for everyone. Okay, don't mention that it might help black people too. Right. Yeah. Uh, we want climate climate uh, change proposals like nobody mentioned that it, it might actually help brown and black people. And then maybe we'll get white people to accept it. But that doesn't sound right either. And I don't even think it works. So it's like, fuck, at the policy level, not at the relation level, the relation level. You're right. Like, what else are you going to do? You have to actually get people to see themselves in the other. But at the policy level, how do we get the country to rally around things that are objectively, quantifiably good for all of us without instantly falling into the zero-sum racism trap? I'm really stunned and inspired by what you just said. And it brings me to my final question. Uh, You worked for years on this book. Obviously, this book is like the culmination of your life's work, really. Um, Yeah. Is, did writing it make you more optimistic that there is a path forward or more pessimistic about our country's future? You know, I learned a lot. I was surprised by a lot in writing The Some of Us. I didn't actually think that I would find the fingerprints of racism around so many issues, so many policy areas, just how pervasive it would be. Yeah. That, that racism was the sort of thread connecting these issues from why workers aren't paid enough to why we aren't acting strongly on climate change to, you know, why our democracy is so corrupt. But ultimately, the effect for me of, of seeing that thread across so many issues was that it, it felt at the end kind of easier to make progress on each of them if we just pull the thread, right? Mm. And that progress on each of those issues, which on their own can feel kind of like mind-bendingly complex and difficult. If you take each challenge on its own and try to not see the racial dynamics there in our politics and our policymaking. So it's like, if we pull that common thread, solutions become a lot closer at hand. And so I did leave, you know, the writing the final, the final, 
words, which I did after the election uh, in November, um, feeling more optimistic that if this is a kind of Rosetta Stone for, for seeing our politics in a new way, that it makes it simpler. It's easier to understand and, and hopefully easier to move forward. That's actually a brilliant and, dare I say, existential thought, <laughs> that when you recognize that so many of these issues that are plaguing our world actually have at their heart the problem of racism, it actually mm-hmm. makes it weirdly easier to confront all yeah. these mm-hmm. giant yeah. issues because deal with the core, the central issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And if we can pull that thread and unravel racism and see it at be, as being at the core of so many other you know, world crippling issues um, that goes to that essential otherness that racism is about, about, you know, alienating the other and making ourselves separate from one another and not united as a human species sharing a biosphere. Mm -hmm. And those, you're right, Reza and, and, and Heather, the, the path does become more clear. If we, if we really shine a light on this one issue um, there's there's a way forward around, you know, economics and poverty and environment and and healthcare and mental health and so many of these other you know crippling horrible issues that the world is dealing with. You know, there there may be a way out. Yeah, I'd like well, to think so. I mean, here we thought you were just going to solve racism. Turns out you solved it all, everything. Thank you. You solved yeah. all the world's problems. All the world's Not just problems. racism. <laughs> You're Thank welcome, you. welcome, dear listeners. <laughs> Speaking of the terrible transition, it's time for the lightning round questions. All right, Heather, this is how I'm this ready. works. is uh, We're going to ask you a, a few of just life's big questions, and then you just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right, ready? Here we go. Take it away, Brain. Okay. Uh, lightning round. When do you, Heather, feel most connected with the universe? Uh, when I was nursing my son, I did feel the most connected with the universe. What's one habit that you have that you're actually proud of? Uh, talking to strangers and giving money to people who ask it on the, for it on the street. Do you give money to people that you're doing podcasts with? <laughs> Cash out. Cash out me, bro. I get you. I think Venmo me. You're doing okay, Rain. What is one skill that you wish you had? I wish I could sing. Like, really sing. What book changed your life? The Color Purple. And why? I mean, I suppose we should. Um, It was the first story that I couldn't stop thinking about that followed me everywhere. And I was really young. It's kind of an adult story. And I read it when I was really young. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just the first time I saw characters like me, like black girls, um, and, and truly loved them and just couldn't stop thinking about them. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. My soul is dinner parties, babies, uh, cats, Shooting stars and expired milk. <laughs> <That's a> last, <laughs> one of these kids is not like the other. 
Good God. Okay. All right. Name something that most people like, but that you can't stand. Flan? Oh, God. No, who likes flan? Flan like is Like half so, the global oh population. I know. Rain likes flan. I love flan. But I, I will tell you something about flan. I don't like how flan makes my mouth feel. There's no... There's no difference between good flan and bad flan. <laughs> this is so true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you can go into like a, a, a crappy Puerto Rican deli and they have like flan to go mm-hmm. in a little foil mm-hmm. capsule, you know, in, in, in New York City yep. and you can eat it with a spoon. It's going to taste the same as like the fanciest flan at the most, yeah. you know, at the fanciest South American restaurant in Los Angeles. Yeah. Exactly. I just want to say this is the, the um, most amount of times that the word flan has been said in a, in a podcast. Flan, 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 flan. How do we solve, Heather, how do we solve the flan crisis? <laughs> is it racism that gives flan its mouthfeel? I don't that know. May, that may be true, it all goes back to racism. And finally, what is your life's biggest question? Can we get there in time? Can we do it in time? Mm-hmm. I love that. Not can we get there, but can we do it in time? Heather McGee, uh, you know, I'm, I'm nuts about you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is, um, I mean, we don't need to sing the praises of this book. Everybody else is already singing the praises of this book. Huge uh, bestseller. And um, I think it's just provided, at least for us, a new framework for how to think not just about racism, but about all um, our social problems. And I'm so grateful to call you my friend. And <laughs> and speaking of that friendship, one thing I noticed about your book, Heather, there were a lot of amazing authors that were blurbed on your book. I didn't see Reza's name there anywhere. <laughs> huh. I didn't see the Reza Aslan quote. I kind of some of us. I just don't know how this friendship, it. how strong this friendship really <laughs> yeah. is. I guess I really... I, I don't know. Friends don't Just. ask friends to blurb. You know that. <laughs> That's crossing a line. Heather McGee, thank you so much for solving thank not you. only racism, but all of the world's problems. We love you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I love this. I'll tell you what I loved about that conversation, Rain. Okay, go. Is that, and we've done, you know, we've done dozens of these conversations mm-hmm. where it's like, here's a problem and it's an endemic problem. And okay, so how do we fix it? And then the person mm-hmm. says, oh, we fix it by, you know, loving each other and holding hands. Or we fix it by changing the way that we think about X, Y, and Z. But what Heather said at the end of that conversation about like, how do we get people mm-hmm. to remove the zero-sum racism mentality and actually support things that are to everyone's benefit and also to racial minorities' benefit, the way that you do that is by appealing to something that I think is an even deeper impulse Mm -hmm. than racism. And that's this notion that someone out there is like trying to get you, that someone that that you know that there's a like a greedy corporation you know these like rich folk uh, they're they're making this an issue of race and they're doing it to pick your pockets mm. and 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 don't fall for it and i i don't know about you but that that kind of shit always works for me like whenever someone's like oh they're they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes don't let them i i always get energized by that 
And it seems like such an obvious thing to do, right? To just be like, this isn't about race. It, they're making it about race because they want to pick your pockets. That's what this is about. Like that to me, that works. About 80% of Democrats and almost 60% of Republicans are in favor of taxing the super rich uh, in order to fund social programs. So this is actually a, an item of unity. So That's right. it kind of goes hand in hand with that. I love that idea. I like that there are there are giant elite corporate interests that want to continue to foment racism and turn everything into a racist diatribe in order to keep the people down and to keep you all poorer. Um, yep. So maybe Pocketbook can trump racism after all. It might. I mean, it seems like a better better plan than talking about racial justice messaging. That doesn't work. We talked about why that doesn't work. It actually turns people off. Mm. Uh, it, it, the colorblind message, which I've always, this isn't about race. Every fucking thing's about race. And by the way, like read Heather's book, everything's about race. Mm. But yeah, you said it right. Like, you know, this is all a scam mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. these rich corporations are pulling Right. Uh, yeah. Th this is a. Per We're going to watch this actually take place here when we start talking about taxing the rich. You're going to hear the Koch brothers, well, the Koch brother now, say, <laughs> um, say something to the effect of, "Oh, this is so you know, so that uh, we can give more welfare to poor people." By which he means black and brown people. Right. And when that message starts, our message has to be, "This is a scam." Yeah. This I is mean, a it, scam. it does. It does play into the worst of human instincts, which is like <laughs> mistrust and conspiracy <laughs> and protecting what's mine. And I got to use gotta, it to our advantage. But maybe we leverage it to our uh, advantage until humanity gradually, uh, eventually yes. matures yes. and sees yes. us all as one beautiful human family holding hands in the sunlight, holding balloons. But until then, thank you, Heather McGee, for uh, giving us a path <laughs> Forward and diving deep with the Metaphysical Milkshake team. Milkshakers, welcome. Uh, as you know, sometimes we bring guests onto the show to ask their life's big questions, to discuss these topics with them. Here's how you can reach us. You can reach us on social media and uh, tweet at us, Instagram at us, and we'll look you up and hunt you down. Or leave a review on Apple Podcasts with your life's big question, and we will track you down and bring you on the show. Uh, we're very lucky today to have a, a, a guest, a fan, a listener. Peter is on the show. Hi, Peter. How you doing? I'm good. Nice to meet you. Where are you where calling you, uh, in from? Where are you calling from? West Hollywood. West Hollywood. I used to live in West Hollywood. Yeah. Back in my like younger, in my younger, sexier days. <laughs> you got to be like young and sexy to live in West Hollywood. And and you, Peter, you look young and and fairly sexy, I have to say. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I my parents' first house was in West Hollywood, but it's nice coming back here like after college. Nice. All right. So you're a college grad. What brings you to the show? What is your What is your question? What can we discuss with you? Yeah, so I'm a writer, and I'm wondering if you think it's possible to create something that's not influenced by your life or background, or do you think that everything we create 
stems from our own personalities and individual life experiences. Oh, do I have a lot to say about this? Oh, I bet. We've got a writing do professor on the show. I have a lot show. to say about this. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Peter, I mean, the oldest adage in writing is write what you know, right? People say this all the time. Yeah. Write what you know. Write what you know. And it's true, except that it's misunderstood. I think the problem is that people think write what you know means write only about things that you know about. But that's not what we mean when we say write what you know. Write what you know means mine the depths of your experience to create universal emotions, right? Like what I always tell my students is individual experience universal emotions. So, you know, you may not uh, know what it's like to, you know, be an astronaut, okay? So it's like, oh, well, am I not allowed to write a, a character who's an astronaut? Well, of course you are because you know what it's like to be scared. You know what it's like to be lonely. You know what it's like to, you know, uh, be exhilarated, <laughs> you know? You know what it's like to be right. floating 5,000 miles above the earth in orbit. <laughs> <laughs> and so write what you know isn't about your experiences. It's about your emotions. That's, that's what I always try to rem remind people. You know, like you can write, you can make your protagonist be anybody that you want it to be, but you have to instill your own emotions into that character in order to make them real. But they don't have to be literally you. <laughs> They just right. have to have your emotions because your I emotions mean, are I mean, one of the greatest qualities that we have as human beings is imagination. And some of my greatest favorite works of fiction, Alice in Wonderland, Dante's Inferno. Okay, truth be told, I never read that one. Um, <laughs> Stephen King's The Stand, you know, uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. These are greatly imaginative, magical books. Um that I'm so glad the author undertook and didn't feel that they could only write abject realism as a style because that's what they know. So you can only write about a college grad living in West Hollywood. Um, but I think you're exactly right, Reza. How, what about you, Peter? What, what kind of stuff are you writing? What are you working on? And how are you bumping up against this? Yeah, so, um, so I went to Emerson and Emerson is a campus. Um, in Hollywood on Sunset. And my last semester, like right, right before COVID happened, I took a class about writing female characters in horror movies. Mm. And we got to read a lot of horror scripts. And I loved that class. And we also got to write the first act of a horror feature, which was a lot of fun. So I've been working on that script a lot the last two years. Peter, how's Emerson's football team doing this year? Um, they're great. They're undefeated this year. Oh, fabulous. Great. Peter, good luck with your writing. Um, uh, I love that assignment to, to write a different gender than yourself and, uh, to, to push those boundaries. I think that's, that's exciting and, and cool and a very interesting question. And Reza, that was a terrific answer. I actually learned something today from you, believe it or oh, not. Yeah. That's so rare. Yeah. So put that in your book <laughs> and smoke it. Thank you, Peter. So do you want more of these life's big questions? Find us on social at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson and at Metaphysical Milkshake. 
and let us know your life's big questions. We just might explore them on a future episode. And always remember to follow, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you may listen to your podcasts. And if you like to see people's lips move while they're having conversations, you can watch us on YouTube. So subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel and watch our full episodes every week. All right, see you next week. And don't be racist. Don't be a racist, jerk. (laughs) Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Paris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. And if you can yeah. say to poor white people, I mean, I mean, I know you're not a coal miner, uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, Jethro. I, I feel like that was racist too. That, that was that racist was, calling them. Yes. Okay. Uh, you see, <laughs> you see, you see what I'm up against, Heather. <laughs> see, oh, right, let's fine. make fun of the poor white guy. We'll call him Jethro. Why Look, isn't his name I, Phil? Evan. Evan. I feel like most white people are named Evan, Evan or Sean. Sean. Let's continue. Evan, and this, Sean. This hypothetical Evan. poor white male is named Evan. <laughs> Evan. And I think Jethro is a beautiful name. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.